Romans chapter 7. If you aren't super familiar with the Bible, Romans is in the New Testament. It's, there's first the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's the book of Acts, which is the story um, about the early church after Jesus has died, resurrected, and ascended. It's the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church. And then after that is the first letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. Not the first letter he ever wrote, but the first letter that we have in the New Testament written by him, um, which is Romans Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. Romans 7, starting in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet... If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us understand your word. That your spirit would work powerfully to help our minds understand the truth and help our hearts to rejoice in the truth that we learn. Lord, so that our lives would be changed, and as a result, so would our communities. For the sake of your Son's glory, amen. Well, the last um, couple of years, since we started the church, we've been going through Romans, and we've taken breaks and gotten in and out of it, and, and uh, we've jumped into this portion of Romans starting in late August slash early September, in which we started talking about the doctrine of sanctification, Doctrine of sanctification is growth in holiness. Up until then, Paul had been clearly laying out what it means to be saved. The fact that we're sinners and the fact that the law has condemned us in our sin. And the fact that as a result of that, we're condemned um, to hell. And yet God, because of his great love for us, sent his son to die for us, to save us so we'd have forgiveness of sins. So we would be what we call justified, which is to be forgiven and declared righteous. That was the letter up till chapter five. Then in chapter five, Paul started announcing what happens as a result of justification. Because we're saved, because we're saved, we have assurance, security. We know that God will keep us to the end. And Paul states it interestingly um, by saying first that we have this certain hope of glory, that we will see God in all his glory and that we will ourselves be glorified or changed, perfected, that we'll live that way eternally. And then Paul goes on and says that if God would do all this for his enemies, how much more will he do this for his friends? We were his enemies and he killed his son for us. Now we're his friends. Well, how much more will he save us to the end? If he'd save us in that state, certainly he'll save us now to the end. And he goes on and talks about the fact that there was a time at which we were in, in Adam. We were people who were fallen. Adam 
If you guys know the story of Adam and Eve, were in the Garden of, um, of Eden. They were there and they had uh, a time in their lives where they were living perfectly before God. And God had said, you can eat fruit from any tree except not that tree. And you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to eat from that tree. And Satan came and tempted them and said, doesn't that look good? You'll be like God. He's a tyrant. Don't listen to him. And so they took matters into their own hands. They ate from that tree. As a result of that, all men were fallen in Adam. Adam was a a sinner, but he was our corporate head. Kind of like a president represents us. You know, when the president declares war, guess who else declares war? All the citizens of his nation, don't they? And that is true um, whether you like the president or not. We can say we're at war. That's true with Adam. When Adam, in a sense, um, declared war on God by eating that fruit, when he was condemned in his sin, he, as our representative, we also fell with him. And what Paul says is we're either in Adam, fallen with Adam as sinners who transgress the law of God, which means to violate the law of God or rebel against the law of God. We're either in him or... Through faith, we're in Christ. Christ is the second Adam, Paul says. Christ came to live the perfect life, keep the law, obey the Father in everything in a way that Adam failed to, in a way that Israel then failed to, and in the way that we all failed to. Jesus did it perfectly. And so we're either in Adam and therefore judged with him, or we're in Christ and therefore judged with him. And if we're in Christ, we receive his righteousness and his perfectness. We're forgiven for our sins because when he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And then he rose from the dead and we're either in him or we're in Adam. That's what Paul says. And what the law did, Paul says, wait a minute though. There's a law, and I know you guys are aware of it, and that law intervened between the fall, between the fall and the coming of Christ. There was a law that came along, right? You all are familiar with it if you know, if you've heard the phrase, the Ten Commandments. That's a summary of it. That law came along, and the question became, why? And what does Paul say? The law came to show you how sinful you are and to incite more sin in you. But where, the, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. People go, wait a minute, Paul. We remember God giving us the law as this gracious provision because we're sinners. To help us, we thought, become holy like we were supposed to be. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not what the law was for. The law was to show you how sinful you are to confirm your condemnation. In fact, it shows you how sinful you are not only by showing you God requires this and you've done this instead, but it shows you how sinful you are by saying, I'm telling you to do this, and as soon as I command you to do it, you're going to do the exact opposite. That's how sinful you are. But God is gracious. And where Sin abounds as a result of law. Grace abounds all the more. And then people come and respond to Paul. Well, then if that's the case, if that's the case, then I guess we should sin it up. Shouldn't we sin? Because then grace will abound all the more. God will be glorified. If you're saying we're really that secure, if Jesus did it all and there's no way I can lose it, and if he was that good to me as an enemy, he'll be that much more good to me as his friend. If that's true, then why not continue in sin? Because... 
What difference does it make? I'm still going to get grace. I'm still going to be saved. I'm still going to be rewarded on the last day. And Paul says, you obviously don't get it. A person who understands that graciousness isn't desiring to sin more. They're desiring out of thanksgiving to love God more. Also, you don't get it because when God accepts you, as Billy Graham used to say, right? Just as you are, he doesn't leave you there. When he receives you just as you are as his son or daughter in Christ, when he does that, he changes you. You have a heart change. As Ezekiel says, your heart of stone is removed and you're given a heart of flesh. Jesus, you guys have heard this story potentially, told Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, he told Nicodemus what he called this is being born again. You're a new person. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. What is, what, what, what is he talking about? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old man in Adam is dead. Crucified with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. And yet, Paul says... I live, new creation, not I, but Christ who lives within me and the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God. I'm a new person in Christ living by faith. And as a result of that, the law no longer condemns me. The law no longer enslaves me. The law no longer um, demonstrates how incapable I am and masters me. Now the law is Good in the sense that I'm able to keep it because I now want to. I now want to. That's what Paul has been laying out. Because I've been bought by Christ. I don't belong to the law anymore. I belong to him. And because that's true, I now want to keep his law. Because when I was under the law, when I was under the law, it just incited sin in me. In fact, in Romans 7, 5, he says this. For while we were living in the flesh... That's the old man prior to being born again. He's not talking about your body when he uses this word flesh here. Sometimes he is talking about your body. Romans chapter 1, Jesus was born according to the flesh. He's talking about humanity. In other places he talks about um, the life, Galatians 2.20, the life I now live. When he's talking about living in the flesh, he's talking about his physical body. Here he's talking about the spiritual principle of the flesh, which is sin, to be corrupted, to have what we normally call a sin nature. And you guys are all aware of what that is, because listen to the description. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's what the law was doing. And thus this question is asked. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? If the law arouses my sin, then is the law sin? And Paul says, by no means. By no means. That's his first answer. It's just an emphatic. No. Right? Big crescendo. What shall we say? Is the law sin? No. Of course it's not. Why? For it hadn't been the law, I would not have known sin. 
I would not have known what it was, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Well, let me talk about four things the law shows us. Okay, four things the law shows us. Um, First, the law shows us sin is sin. The law shows us that sin is sin. What do I mean by that? Paul makes a statement, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now listen, as a Jew and a Pharisee, Paul always had the law. By the time he was a baby, he was hearing the law. And he was convinced yet that he was a good person. He thought of the law in terms of external obedience. And he did that well. In fact, he says of himself in Philippians chapter 3 that he was what? According to the law, blameless. He calls himself blameless. Yet in 1 Timothy 1, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Think his opinion changed about himself? He thought he was okay. However, it was when he realized the law speaks of the heart and not just external obedience that he realized he's a sinner. That's when he realizes he's a sinner. That's why he cues in on the 10th commandment when it says this. What does he say there? I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Isn't it interesting? The Ten Commandment is the only one of the commandments that's entirely an attitude commandment, isn't it? In a sense, right? It's an attitude commandment. You can covet and never, ever act on it, can't you? It's an attitude commandment. You can't murder generally without acting on it in Paul's understanding of the law. Or commit adultery without acting on it. Now Jesus comes along and fills that out some more. And Paul isn't doubting Jesus. But Paul's talking about his understanding of the law as a Pharisee prior to knowing Christ. And his understanding of the law as a Pharisee, one who was a keeper of the law, prior to knowing Christ, was that this was all external. And then he hears about coveting. And he says, when I heard about coveting, I realized. And he already knew about it. But it wasn't until God applied it to his own life where the spirit worked in him and it was applied to his own life that he saw the truth. How how does that happen? Um, At some point, the law demonstrated to Paul, to Paul, not that he was righteous and could be saved by his own righteousness, but that he was a sinner and desperately needed Christ. Desperately needed Christ. Uh, uh, I'll give you an explanation of, of how this goes. In our lives, we all sin, don't we? We know when we're sinning, even when we're kids. Did any of you know you were sinning before you ever heard the word sin and knew what it was? And here's what I mean by that. You went into do something you knew was wrong as a kid even. I know that I did this. You know it's wrong. I'm going to take that. I know I shouldn't. I feel bad about taking it. I know it's wrong. Your conscience starts telling you, right? Don't do it. Don't do it. That's wrong. And then you go and do it anyways, and you feel really guilty. Anybody experience that? But you didn't necessarily call it sin. There's all kinds of things we call that, but we don't often call it sin. We don't realize it's a transgression, not only against that person we took it from, but it's a transgression or a sin against God. We don't recognize sin until the law comes. We 
Paul isn't saying we don't experience sin until the law comes. What he's saying is we don't realize it's sin. We don't realize it's a transgression of the law of God until the law is shown to us clearly. And when we see that, then we realize I have not only sinned in David's case, right? If you remember David, the king of Israel, who sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, he went and took Uriah's wife while Uriah was at war and then he had Uriah killed after he took her and Uriah was faithful to him the whole time when he goes to repent what does he say against you Lord have I sinned usually where we are is we're thinking that our sin is against somebody else it's bad because I did this to that person but when the law comes we realize it's against the Lord that we've sinned And that's why it's sin. Paul didn't recognize his sin against the Lord until coveting was applied. Think of the Ten Commandments. When I was a youth pastor, when I was a youth pastor, I was, uh, um, had a couple hundred kids in the youth group. And I remember at one point I taught for the Ten Commandments and I asked the students at the beginning, and some of them are in here, I probably remember, I asked the students if they could name the Ten Commandments. Can anyone name the Ten Commandments? And, um, no one could. But every single one of them could name 10 different beers, right? These are high school kids. Can anybody name 10 different beers? Yes, I can. Budweiser, Coors, Miller. Go down the list. Heineken, that's one I like. Okay, and then Amstel, whatever, right? And so you go down these lists and they can name them. 10 commandments? Um, Don't commit adultery. Good. Any more? Um... I think there's something about lying, something about killing, right? And they go down the list. They're not real. They weren't real familiar with the Ten Commandments. Hopefully after the series they were. But if we start thinking through them, just think through them really briefly. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? God doesn't mean that I should be the first God and the other gods are okay as long as I'm first. By before me, he means in my presence, Right? No other gods in my presence, and I'm everywhere. So no other gods. I'm it. No other gods. And we say, well, do I don't really violate that law. I've never believed in any other god. Let me ask you this. Have you always lived your life for his glory, recognizing him as the king and authority, and keeping his law perfectly, doing all that he says all the time? No, you haven't. And if you say you have, you're a liar. And there's a violation of his law. Right? So we got you. No one has. So you've never said, I have no other gods before me. There have been other gods. Paul actually calls in Colossians 3, 5, he calls coveting idolatry. Why is it idolatry? Because I desire something, right, that I don't have and that I think God can't provide for me. And I don't mean provide for me like I want that Porsche I can't have it. I'll pray and God will give it to me. That's not what I mean. What I mean is I think that my satisfaction will be found in that thing and not in God. And because I don't think he provides a satisfaction, I'm coveting. And because I'm coveting, I'm committing idolatry because I desire something and I don't think he can provide it. So Paul understands it's idolatry. Second commandment, don't make any graven images quickly. We don't make little statues, I know, and worship them. We even think it's silly when we see people doing it. When I was in India, I saw over a billion people doing it. And we think that's silly. We don't make statues, but we have hood ornaments on our cars, don't we? 
And we have designer brands. And I could go down the list of things that we worship. Sometimes I'm convinced that the devil just sits on the front of the mall. Right? When I'm coming into Valley Plaza, there's Satan right there. Just come on in. Look at all that you don't have. Come in and worship. Right? Do you guys ever feel that way when you walk in? I mean, that, might, that just might be me. I just might be paranoid. But it's like... I, I just feel like the mall is an experience in which I walk through and recognize all that I don't have and wish I did. And then I feel dissatisfied. That's the experience for me. Maybe you just go in there and enjoy a Cinnabon and have your time. But that's not... not that's the other thing. I also covet that because I see the Cinnabon or Bon or whatever they call it and think to myself, I wish I could eat that, but I shouldn't, right? And so I don't because I don't have the metabolism I wish I had. And now if I'm jealous of Bo and coveting his metabolism. So whatever it happens to be, it's a coveting problem. That's the point, okay? Third commandment, you shall not what? You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. What does that mean? Just saying GD? No, that's talking about any time when you invoke the name of the Lord, you're invoking him. When you speak, when I preach and I am not telling you the truth about God, I'm using his name in vain. When we sing and you mouth the words and aren't thinking about the God whose mouth, whose words, you know, that you're mouthing about, you're not thinking about him, reflecting on him, loving him. You're taking his name in vain. It isn't just saying GD. Oh, if it was just that easy to keep that command. Fourth commandment. Keep the Sabbath day holy. What's this? God made the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Originally, that was Saturday. In the new covenant, Jesus dies On Friday, raises from the dead. On Sunday, it's the beginning of a new creation. The apostles recognize this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. This is the beginning of a new creation. So we will now worship that day. And so then the pattern of the disciples throughout the New Testament is they called it the Lord's Day and they worshiped on it. It was Sunday and it switched from Saturday, which was the original Sabbath. And they started worshiping. Here was the point. They took a day aside to rest, to worship God and serve. That's it. No work. No stress, they rested. Why is the Sabbath helpful or important? Because it demonstrates a trust that God will care for me. I don't need to work seven days. God will care for me. I can rest. I can worship him. I can take time and give it to him and set it apart as holy. Our whole culture has thrown that out. You know, there used to be Sabbath laws. Everything had to be closed on Sundays. I still wish there were except when I forget to fuel up earlier in the week. But the, the point is, I wish they were there because by going to work on Sunday, we've just wrecked it for everybody. It was just beneficial for the culture. Now we've just kind of taken that out. We're all violating that all the time. Um, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. This is talking about honoring those God's put in authority over you. How many of us violate that? Our mom and dad, by the way, isn't just talking about um, when you're a child, obeying them. Although it is talking about that. In Ephesians 6, 1, it talks about obeying your parents, 1 and 2. But it's not just talking about that. Jesus applies this in Matthew 15 to the way you care for your parents as they're elderly. 
that you take care of them when they're elderly. That you don't say, well, I gave my money to the church. Sorry, (laughs) you're on your own. You care for them. That's honoring your father and mother. That's an application Jesus makes. It's talking about honoring them their whole lives, not just when you're children. And it's talking about further, by further extension, by further extension, obeying authorities that are put over you. We violate that all the time. Sixth commandment, what is it? Don't murder. Right? I've never killed anybody. Well, Jesus says in in, um, the Sermon on the Mount that if you've ever hated anybody, you've committed murder. Because you've hated an image bearer of God. If you've cursed them, told think about the phrase, go to hell. Think about what you're saying. What are you wishing on a person? G-D-U. What? Really? Is that a prayer? Think about how we treat people. Jesus says you're killing them. It's murder. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. A lot of people commit adultery, but that's not just talking about physical sex. Jesus clearly says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you lust after another in your heart who is not your own, you've committed adultery. Eighth commandment, what is it? What's that? Don't steal. Oh, I've never actually stolen. I've stolen. I've gone into like AMPM and put two hamburgers into one hamburger bag so I only pay one price. I'm not going to lie to you. That's not recent. Don't worry. That was like when I was 16. But the point is I've done it. I've stolen things. Nothing big. You know, I put some candy in my pocket or whatever. But I've committed theft. But you want to know where I stole? I remember when I was a high school teacher in the Kern High School District. I stole. Here's how I did it. Whenever we had in-service days, I'd sign a little sheet and bail out and go to the movies. (laughs) Right? And I was getting paid for that day. And it wasn't until I realized that's wrong. They give us two personal days when I was a teacher in the current high school district and eight sick days. And I would often be sick when I wasn't, right? So then I wasn't even stealing. Then I was turning around and going in and lying about it because I had to sign a thing saying I was sick. People steal from their employers all the time. When we're lazy at work, it's their time. We've committed theft. When we leave early and we're getting paid the full time and the employer didn't say you can go home early, theft. Take things that aren't ours, theft. We've all done it, haven't we? Let's be honest. Ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. It's not just about lying. That includes gossip, slander. Go down the list. Guilty. Tenth commandment. Don't covet. Dead in the water. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's car, anything. I've coveted everything my neighbor has practically. And all my other neighbors too, right? (laughs) And even people who aren't my neighbor that I just randomly drove by. Look at that. (laughs) Anyways, that's that's just me. (laughs) The Ten Commandments demonstrate we're sinners. The law does. And we recognize we're sinners before a holy God. We recognize we're condemned. That's what Paul says. Second, not only does the law show us we're sinners, it stimulates our sin. And I'm going to try to move quickly here. Look at verse 8. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. What Paul is saying is because we're so sinful, we can use anything as an opportunity to sin. It was Paul hearing the command, do not covet, that led him into covetousness that he did not even know he was interested in. He started coveting ways he didn't even know he was interested in coveting. He heard don't covet and he wanted to covet. We know this with our kids because we tell our kids don't touch. And what do they want to do? Touch. Think about how much we rebel when we know what we're not supposed to do. Think about how much we rebel against it. Why? Because it's sexy. It's exciting. I can't tell you how excited I was to want to grab the fire alarm in high school. I so badly wanted to pull it. Anybody else want to pull it? Just me? Said, don't pull. When I see things that are just drawing and it says don't touch, I so want to touch them. That's the way I am. I'm a sick human being. That's why I love Jesus. If it's off limits, we want to do it. I was listening to a guy. Um, I was watching Jay Leno the other night. Listen to a guy talk about this, some star. I don't even know who the guy is from England. I'm so out of touch culturally. I don't know anything. I, I even was on a conference and I heard a joke about Ned Flanders. Anybody know who Ned Flanders is? I don't know who Ned Flanders is. And I said to my buddies, who's Ned Flanders? Apparently he's a, he's a character on The Simpsons. And, and they look at me and they go, you don't know who Ned Flanders is? These are all young hip pastors of which I'm not. And I said, no, I've never heard of Ned Flanders. Have you heard of Kevin Harvick? Rick Mears? No, we haven't. Well, apparently you're not from Bakersfield. You're out of touch. Don't you know about NASCAR? Right? That shows how cool we are here. But especially me. Anyways, I'm watching this guy and he's talking about, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm watching him and he's talking about uh, um, going to meet the Queen of England. And they said, these are the things you do. You bow from the head, not from the waist. And when you meet her, you shake her and you say hand and you say this one little thing and you don't, whatever you do, you don't, uh, you know, you don't curtsy. You're a man. You don't do any of that kind of stuff. And he said, as the queen was coming down the line, we went, all I wanted to do was like just grab her and like dip her and curtsy. And I so badly wanted to do it. You know, that's how we are. He thought it would be so funny and cool if I did that. But don't, and I watched and I thought, man, that is so insightful. He recognizes that the law makes him want to sin. I don't think he recognizes the need for Jesus as the problem. But what does Paul mean when he says, but apart from the law, he says this, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul's point is that sin wants to pervert what is holy. It wants to rebel against authority. And until the law comes, sin doesn't really come alive. We pervert good things like the law. It's the law stimulating our sin that shows us how very sinful we are. Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about the way that we, that sin misuses the law. Let me give you a few of them. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in Britain out of Wales in the 1900s who was a great preacher. And he wrote about, he wrote a list of things of, of the way we misuse the law, how we pervert it. Listen to these. First, Sin gets us to misuse the law, convincing us that as long as we have not sinned outwardly and visibly, we're all right, forgetting that with God, the heart is what matters. Second, 
Sin tells us everything is hopeless, and so we should just keep on sinning. If I just went through the Ten Commandments, how many of you thought, what's the use of even trying anymore? Third, sin tells us holiness doesn't matter. Keep on sinning so grace may abound. Fourth, sin deceives us into thinking that the law is God's way of keeping us from happiness. I used to think that when I was a teenager like crazy. I used to think, wow, when I get old, like 25, then I'll start being a good boy. That's what I thought, I'm telling you. That's what you think when you're a teenager, right? I'm married, it's over for me now. All the fun has ended, so now I'll be good. But until then, no. Sin gets us to believe that the law is unreasonable, impossible, and unjust. Six, sin puffs us up. It makes us wonder why we should be bound by any law. I should make my own laws. Seven, sin says the law is oppressive, keeps us from developing our true gifts and talents. (laughs) Eight, sin makes holiness look boring and unattractive. Nine, sin lies about the consequences of disobedience. It whispers in your ear, you will surely not die. You surely won't be condemned. It's not that bad. Third, not only does the law show us our sin, not only does the law incite sin in us, but third, the law slays us as sinners. It slays us as sinners. Romans 7, 9 and following, look, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. What does Paul mean by I was once alive apart from the law? Paul's a believer now, at this point when he's writing, looking back on his experience as an unbeliever and his thought that he was righteous and spiritually alive prior to seeing his own sinfulness. What he's saying is, I believed I was alive back then. I felt alive. I experienced being alive. And then the law came and I died. I realized I was dead. He's talking about his experience as an unbeliever. Past tense. All these are aorist tense verbs here. It's all past tense. It's all in the past. This is what I experienced. Past. Thought I was alive. Then the law came and I died. I wasn't under the conviction of sin. Now, again, I said this. Paul knew the law, didn't he, from the time he was young. So what does he mean by apart from the law? He was never apart from it. What he means is this. Not that I didn't know about the Ten Commandments, but I never had real conviction of sin with regard to them. I heard them, but I wasn't that convicted that I was a sinner. I thought I was blameless under the law because I thought it was about external obedience. And it was that time that I coveted that I realized I was a sinner and I died. I realized I was spiritually dead then. Many people live like the rich young ruler. I'm going to turn to Luke 18 and read his story briefly to you. Luke 18, the rich young ruler 
is much like Paul was as an unbeliever. Luke 18 and verse 18, he says this, this ruler comes to Jesus and, and the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Jesus is making the point. So you recognize I'm God? You know the commandments. Listen to what he says to him. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Hear the rich young ruler's problem. All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is possible with men? Excuse me, impossible with men is possible with God. Now, listen to this story. This man comes to Jesus and says, I've kept the law. How do I get eternal life? Jesus says, keep the law. You know the commandments. Don't do these things. So I've done that. Jesus goes, well, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Come follow me. What commandment is Jesus getting at? He's getting at the 10th commandment and the first commandment, isn't he? And the second commandment. And you have other things that are God for you. You're going to walk away from salvation, from eternal life. Do you hear that? You're going to walk away from it for your business and your money. Really? He walks away sad. Jesus knew. The rich young ruler didn't know he was the sinner. He was. He saddened, but he isn't convicted to the point of repentance. And then Jesus says, for rich man, it's tough to get into heaven. It's more difficult than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You've seen the eye of a needle? You've seen a camel. In other words, what Jesus says is impossible for rich people, people who have money. That's 100% of us in this room. It's impossible for them to be saved. And the disciples get it. And they say, wait a minute. If that's impossible, then how will any of them be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible for man is possible for God. It's possible for God. Why? Because God can take that rich man and change his heart. But he can't do it on his own. The law must slay us. Leon Morris says this of Paul. He's alive in the sense that he's never been put to death as a result of a confrontation with the law of God. We think we're good people. We've not been confronted by our sinfulness. And which that's the case, we sometimes see the law and are a little bit saddened by it, but we're not converted because we haven't really been confronted with our violation of it in the fullest sense. We see the external requirements and we think we've kept them okay. 
or if we violate it and we think it hasn't been that bad. Don't realize we're helpless and need Christ. Some of you in this room, most of you know that my dad was killed by a drunk driver, teenage drunk driver, June 20th, 1980. He was turning to an accident as a police officer and he was killed. The rest of my childhood and youth, I thought to myself, the worst possible sin a person can participate in is to be a drunk driver. That's it. And I thought of myself, I'm pretty good because I haven't done that. I knew about Jesus. I knew about the gospel. I did some stupid things, but I haven't been a drunk driver. So I'm all right. When I was 18 years old, October 5th of 1991, I was in the um, California Army National Guard, and I was on a drill here in Bakersfield. And I went absent without leave, and I got ridiculously drunk. And all I remember was driving home um, in little glimpses remember myself on the road and I remember waking up at home and my sister and I was drunk enough when my sister said can I take the keys your new truck and go driving I said sure (laughs) that's what I remember never would have allowed that otherwise and I remember waking up the next day and realizing the difference between me and the kid who killed my dad is that no one got in my way I'm a sinner I need Christ that's it God was gracious enough that no one got in my way. I need Christ. That's when I turned to him. Thought my life was acceptable until that point. I was self-righteous. And then the law came and cut me down. It slayed me, as the Puritans say. Puritans used to say, you have to use the law to slay the sinner so that you can use the gospel to raise him up. Fourth, the law substantiates God's holiness, justice, and desire to do us good. The law substantiates God's holiness, justice, and desire to do us good. Look at verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The law is a reflection of God's character and it shows us or proves to us that God is holy. It shows us His holiness. He's perfect in every way. He has no impurity or sin. He's a consuming fire and dwells in unapproachable light. When we see the law, we recognize how we cannot possibly stack up to God's holiness. The law itself is holy because the God who gives it is holy and it's a reflection of His holiness. The law, Paul says, is righteous or just. Why is it just or righteous? Because it's given to us by a just or righteous God and it reflects his character. God will always act justly and the law demonstrates that we are justly condemned. As you've heard my professor, if you were here that week, come and talk about the law. He made the comment that he made this comment. If you run a red light and you go to the judge and the judge says, are you guilty? And you say, yes, but I think I should be let go because on the way to that red light, I went through 10 green ones and I went through 10 green ones afterwards. And I think on balance, I'm okay. The judge is still going to fine you. You can't stand before a good judge, a just judge and say, I know I murdered that person, but I let everyone else on the earth live. You're still going to pay for your crime. 
Crime is what we do against other people, and we have a justice system to deal with that. Sin is what we do against God, and God has a justice system to deal with that. He's just. The law is good or beneficial because God is good and wants to show us favor. God is always good and wants to work for our benefit, for our good. Because He's for us in Christ. So He gives us the law to show us that we're sinners and that we're under His just judgment. And yet, even when He gives that law, that points us to the truth that God's for us. How? Because when he gave the Ten Commandments, he also gave a sacrificial system and said, we're going to shed blood for your forgiveness. And ultimately, I am going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's Paul's point. The law is great. It's holy, righteous, good points you to a holy, righteous, and good God. It shows you that you're a sinner, and that's good of God to do. It's good for Him to show you that. Because if you don't know, you'll careen down the road of life recklessly toward your damnation, thinking you're fine. And God comes along and says, Wait a minute! You're a sinner. You are are making a wreck of your life. And I, as a holy, just God, will judge you. However, I love you. And because of my great love I have for you, I will slay my own son in your place for your violation of the law. He'll pay the penalty in your place on the cross. And then I will treat you when I'm done treating him on the cross as if he lived your life. I will treat you as if you lived his. That's why the law is holy, righteous, and good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. And we pray um, that we would exult in you our good God who has given us a law that is holy, righteous, and good. We pray, Lord, for those here who may not know you, don't know you, Lord, that you would slay them with your law, that they would see their sin and turn to you in repentance and faith, that they would know that you are good. Lord, we pray for the believers who are here. Lord, even as we're going to deal with some of their thinking next week as they dwell on their sinfulness, Lord, we pray that they would dwell instead on your Son. While it is appropriate to see our sin, Lord, and repent of it, it is not appropriate to dwell in it and stay in the guilt and condemnation, but we should look to Jesus. We should rejoice in Him and say, Thanks be to God who delivered me from this body of death. In Jesus' name, amen.